I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I look at the headlines of major events from our nation's history. And then I completely ignore those headlines and find out what else was being reported on in the newspapers on the exact same day. You can find me in the Facebook group, Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed, where you can find additional information about the stories I tell and also see all of my sources. For today's major headline, I decided to dive into an event that happened almost 80 years ago. In my opinion, this event started something that would make one of the biggest impacts on our country's history of all time. It's an event that is remembered in full detail by those who lived through it. Although those numbers get smaller and smaller and smaller with every passing year. Now, keep in mind that 80 years ago, people had a different way of talking. There are some words that we as a country have worked to eliminate from speech and printed articles because we know how offensive they are. I searched for my major headline on the front page of quite a few papers across the country, many of which had sent out special editions just for that day. But as I'd feared, most of the headlines contained a racial slur that I was hoping to avoid. Finally, I decided to go straight to the source of the event and I got lucky. You've probably guessed what event I'm going to talk about, but in case you haven't, our major headline was printed on December 7th, 1941. To quote President Roosevelt, it was a day that will live in infamy. The main front page headline from the Honolulu Star Bulletin's first extra edition of the day reads, War, Oahu Bombed by Japanese Planes. That first edition reported that six people had died and 21 were injured. Sadly, we know that number wasn't at all accurate. And as the days passed, the total number of victims rose and rose until the number of casualties reached 2,403. 68 of those victims were civilians on the island. Sunday, December 7, 1941 started out like most Sundays did for Americans in the 40s. Those in New York City, for example, had already been awake and about their day for many hours. Perhaps they'd bundled up and attended church in the cold weather and then sat down to a lovely Sunday dinner with their families in the afternoon. Those in Los Angeles might have been on their way to the beach to enjoy a picnic and the sunny temps in the 70s. But for those in Hawaii, things weren't so great. The attack came in multiple waves, starting at 7.55 a.m., Japanese planes arrived without any warning and immediately dropped bombs and torpedoes and fired machine guns from the back of the planes. I could talk all day about the men and women who showed immense bravery and the tragic circumstances of that day, but this podcast isn't about the major stories and headlines. It's about those articles that are behind the major headlines. So let's find out what else was happening the day our country entered World War II. My first story of the day is one that I have struggled to wrap my mind around. 
As a parent, it's terrifying. The article can be found in a bunch of different newspapers printed on December 7th, 1941, but I'm taking the headline from the Miami Herald because they put the story on their front page. The headline for this story simply says, goes to grave at 97 without knowing name. The article is only a couple of tiny paragraphs long in a narrow column, but the headline creates a lot of mystery. It tells the story of a man by the name of Wren Fritman. Clear back in 1852, Wren attended a parade in New York City with his family. According to his age at death, he would have been somewhere around eight years old at the time of the parade. That age is important, so remember it. Anyway, at some point during the event, Wren was separated from his family. I don't know if he was too young or too shy or something else, but he couldn't tell anyone what his name was. Mom. 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 Authorities looked for someone missing a child, but they couldn't figure out where he belonged, and no parents showed up searching for a missing child. So, Wren was taken to an orphanage in New York City to wait. It was at this orphanage that he received the name of Renimus Fritman, a name that would stick with him for the next 89 years. Poor little Wren spent years in the orphanage without any answers. And then more years went by, and then more years. Nobody ever came looking for him. Wren eventually grew up and left the orphanage. He served in the Civil War and then married a woman by the name of Mabel Sophia Anderson in Kentucky in May of 1882. They had one daughter together, and I'm not sure how close Wren and Mabel were as a couple, because I did notice that Mabel wasn't even living in the same household as Wren during the 1910 and 1920 federal censuses, even though she said they were still married. Anyway, Wren worked as a school teacher for 25 years in a couple of different counties in Indiana. When he died in 1941, Wren was buried in the Danville National Cemetery and given a veteran's headstone. And that's pretty much all the information I could find about Wren's life. As a mother, I cannot imagine losing a child like that. This article brings up so many questions. Did Wren's parents look for him? Did they purposely desert him? Was he as old as he thought he was? Or was he maybe younger or even older? Why didn't he know his name? Was it stage fright? Did he not speak English? I had so many questions. I figured that was the end of the story and I got ready to climb back out of my rabbit hole. But then I got lucky and I found an article printed almost a month later in the Journal and Courier out of Lafayette, Indiana. The article's headline reads, Mystery of Identity Solved After Nonagenarian's Death. According to that article, a man in Cincinnati named Walter Hutzler saw the December 7th article about Wren's death in the newspaper and made some phone calls. Walter told the newspaper that he grew up being told a story about a lost uncle. Are you ready for this? It was an uncle who got lost during a parade in New York City. According to Walter, his grandparents had just immigrated to America from Germany with their family. One of their children was an eight-year-old boy. 
Sadly, the article still doesn't give the name of the lost child, and maybe it's because Walter couldn't remember that part of the story, or maybe he never knew that name to start with. I'm not really sure on that. Anyway, the Hutzler family had purchased train tickets to go from New York to Cincinnati, and the train was leaving within five hours of the time Wren disappeared. For some reason, the Hutzler family was convinced that they had to be on that train and could not miss it. When they couldn't find their son, they walked away, got on the train to Cincinnati, and left their little eight-year-old boy alone in New York City. Walter told the paper that his grandparents got in contact with authorities in New York as soon as they arrived in Ohio, but they apparently didn't reach the right people because nobody knew anything about a lost boy. Maybe language was the problem. Again, that's just an assumption on my part. Walter's father was Henry, the supposed brother to Wren, and Henry and Wren's father was named Frederick. There are graves for both Henry and Frederick in the Spring Grove Cemetery in Cincinnati, but unfortunately, Walter passed away in 1945, just a few years after the article was written, and as far as I know, the story died with him. Wren never saw his family again, and both parties spent a lifetime wondering whatever happened to their loved ones. Now friends, with all the knowledge we have about DNA these days, I wonder if the mystery will be officially solved by the two men's descendants. I really hope so. Nothing is better than a solved mystery. For my next story, I pulled a headline from the Great Falls Tribune out of Great Falls, Montana. This was an article that appeared in a lot of newspapers across the country over the course of a few days in December. The Great Falls Tribune headline reads, Oddest Accidents of 1941. Oddest Accidents? Those two words told me the article would be a fun read, and it didn't disappoint. The article was taken from a report by the Safety Council on things that had happened across the country throughout the year. For example, a man in New York City was walking down the street when he looked up and saw a baby falling off a ledge. He leaped into action and caught the baby before it hit the ground, saving its life. In another incident, a train in Minnesota was hit by a car on one side at the exact same time Another car hit it from the other side. Did they not have railroad crossing signs in 1941? I don't know. Anyway, I want to give kudos to the mailman in Florida who was bitten by a dog, had a nail go through his foot when a wooden stair collapsed, was bitten by a scorpion in a mailbox, and then stepped on a rattlesnake. All of those things happened on the same day, and all of them happened before lunch. Now, there was another odd incident from the article that left my jaw hanging open. This event happened near East St. Louis, Illinois, to a man named Victor Woodrick. Victor was born in Michigan in late 1917 and grew up on a farm there. He became the student council president of New Troy High School when he was a senior, and to quote the Herald Press announcing it, Victor Woodrick was elected on a basis of reliability and popularity. In other words, everyone liked the guy. 
Victor went on to graduate as salutatorian of his high school and then attended Michigan State College where he studied agriculture. Up to that point, things were going pretty good for Victor. When he graduated from college in 1941, he immediately entered the Army Air Corps and started training to become a pilot. And that's when the incident from the article happened. Victor was just 23 at the time, and he was flying around with his instructor about 500 feet in the air. Now, the little blurb in the article didn't make it clear if the instructor or Victor was doing the flying when the incident happened, and I tried to find an answer elsewhere, but got differing stories. That part isn't really important, though. Somehow, Victor managed to bounce out of the airplane. Um, yeah. In case you missed that, he bounced out of the airplane. Luckily for Victor, when he fell back down, he landed on the tail of the airplane. I don't know about you, but I probably would have died just from the pure terror. But Victor managed to hold onto the tail of the airplane, sitting backward, all the way until the instructor landed safely on the ground. That's insane. I was hoping to find more information, so I looked in other newspapers, and that's where things get a little muddled. First, I'll tell you what account the Herald Press out of St. Joseph, Michigan gave. A lot of other newspapers reported the same version of events. Victor and his instructor were in the process of landing the two-seater open cockpit airplane when it suddenly caught a downdraft and lost some altitude. Unfortunately, Victor's seatbelt had come undone at some point during the flight and he didn't realize it. When the plane lost altitude, Victor floated up out of his seat since the plane was falling faster than he was. His body somersaulted, and then he landed with his back to the cockpit, straddling the fuselage. Victor passed away in 2006, and someone left a different version of that day's events on his Find a Grave memorial page. According to that person, Victor purposely unbuckled his seatbelt to get his headphones that had fallen to the floor. His instructor then decided to teach Victor a lesson, and he purposely sent the plane into a dive. The same note on Victor's memorial said that the event had been talked about on Ripley's Believe It or Not, which is believable, although I couldn't find any information about that either. Friends, do you want to know what my favorite part of the story is? Victor was wearing a parachute. Yes. He had a parachute strapped to his back the entire time, and he was high enough that he could have safely used it. But in the craziness of the moment, he forgot all about the parachute, and instead, the instructor made a miraculous landing with all that extra weight on the tail of the airplane. For my last story of the day, I'm going to cheat a little. Instead of telling a story from a different article from December 7th, 1941, I'm going to reuse the same article I used in the last story, the one about different accidents throughout the year. Another wacky incident described by the Safety Council was summed up in just two sentences, but left a million questions in my mind. The entire article in the paper simply says, the experience of William Hackler of Odin, Indiana, was much more alarming. 
his farm home caught fire 28 times in one day. That's it. Just two sentences. My first reaction was to think that it was some sort of insurance fraud and that the hacklers weren't successful in burning their home down the first few times they tried, so they kept at it. With an incident like that, I had no choice. I had to dig deeper to quench my curiosity. I couldn't find any information on the incident in question in the 1941 newspapers, but that's because it actually happened on June 22, 1940. I have no idea why they didn't talk about it in the safety report until December of 1941, though. Anyway, an article in the Star Press out of Muncie, Indiana, reported that little fires kept starting all over the house. Firemen came from both the towns of Odin and Elnora, but nobody could figure out what was starting the fires. One theory was that some sort of gas in the house was causing things to ignite. Another theory suggested it was spontaneous combustion. Firemen didn't think it was either of those theories, so they closed the case, and that was it. That was all the information I could find from any of the articles printed during the 40s. But the story of the Hackler fires took on a life of its own in later years. Why, you might ask? Because people believed the house was haunted and that the fires were being started by ghosts. In 1985, the Muncie Evening Press printed a series of articles about haunted places in the area. They took their information from a compilation of ghost stories written by Beth Scott and Michael Norman, if you want to look for that. One discrepancy I found was that this article reported the fire as occurring in April of 1941 rather than June of 1940. I did find another incident of a farmhouse burning down in April 1941 in Indiana, but it happened to a completely different family. Someone forgot to fact check. Anyway, at some point in the morning, someone in the Hackler family smelled smoke. The family began to search the house, trying to find the source of the smell. Finally, a family member found a small fire burning near a window in an upstairs room. Reports say that the fire seemed to be burning from within the wall. Usually when that happens, people immediately assume the fire is electrical in nature, right? Here's the thing. The Hackler home had never been wired for electricity, and there wasn't a chimney running through that wall either. The family members all claimed they knew nothing about the fire, and the firemen who came to help eventually left. But as soon as they got back to the fire station, they got another call from the Hackler family. The family said their feather mattress was on fire. Firemen returned to the scene, and while they were there, more fires started. One fireman said he saw smoke coming from a bookshelf. He picked up a book and opened it up. The book was burning from the inside out. Some of the Hackler's neighbors came over and everyone watched as a bedspread suddenly burned. And then overalls. And then a calendar. And the curtains. I find it interesting to note that the only things catching on fire were small items. The house itself never caught on fire. Anyway, by the time the day was over, William had had enough. He packed up his family and they slept somewhere else that night. Eventually, William dismantled the home board by board by board and moved it down the road where he put it all back together again. His family never had a problem with fires after that day. So friends, what do you think was the cause of the fires? 
Was it some weird magnetic thing? Was it related to some sort of mysterious gas? Was it spontaneous combustion? Or do you follow the most widely accepted theory that the Hackler home was possessed by a poltergeist? Join our Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed Facebook group and let me know what you think. Before I end each episode, I like to look at the advertisements from the day of the major headline. Today's advertisement comes from the Eugene Guard, a newspaper out of Eugene, Oregon. The newspaper had dozens of advertisements for various Christmas gifts, everything from jewelry to furniture to clothing to electronics. The ad that caught my eye was for a sable scarf. Prices for the scarfs range from $38.50 all the way to $250. That means that in today's prices, the scarfs would be well over $4,000. This is 1941. It hadn't been that long since the Great Depression ended and the world was at war with the US about to join in. I can imagine that a $250 sable scarf would have been a sign of ultimate wealth back then. For those who did have the money to spend on big ticket items, They could purchase it from the fur department on the second floor of the Miller's store. Personally, even if the scarf only cost $250 in today's money, I still wouldn't want it. I prefer to stick to gifts that are a bit more practical in nature and don't require a bunch of animals to die in the process, but that's just me. Friends, thanks for joining me and listening to some of the wacky stories from December 7th, 1941. Join me next week for an all-new episode of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed.